Good morning and welcome to Forest Hill Church, One Church, Five Campuses, our online community that joins us for this service as well. It's great to have you all be a part of it. As we continue looking at Jesus' most often talked about subject, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's in so many places in his teachings in the Bible. So we've been looking at the gospel of Matthew and the parables about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that help us understand more fully what it means to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom uh, and eternity. Uh, We're going to look at that in just a moment, but let me remind all of you, Tuesday is our time to vote. Uh, We have primaries here. Uh, There are some redrawn districts that demand us to make some choices we're not normally making. But you know, folks, we get the leadership we deserve. And in the United States, where we have the opportunity and privilege as citizens to vote, we should take that very, very seriously. Uh, Again, Tuesday, we vote. Please take that responsibility seriously. It's a part of being a citizen of the United States, but also, I think, in obedience to the Scripture, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Today's parable is a parable about a banquet feast, a wedding feast, if you will. And and it is the third in a series that Jesus taught to the religious leaders of his day. Uh, In order to understand the parable in its fullness, you need to understand its context. Uh, The parable was spoken to the religious leaders on Tuesday before the Friday when Jesus was to be crucified. Uh, Keep that in mind. Uh, These were last words spoken to his great antagonist. And there were a series of three parables that he spoke to the religious leaders, knowing that the day before on Monday he had cleansed the temple and they were angry with him for doing so. He came back the next day, went right back into the lion's den, right back on their home court and engaged them in conversation and gave them three parables. The first one, the parable of the tenants that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus says, you religious leaders were the tenants that God gave responsibility over his unfruitful Israel, and you did not produce the fruit that God wanted, so therefore he's taking the kingdom of Israel away and giving it to a new entity called the church. And then the next parable that he told was the parable of the two sons that our campus pastors unwrapped last week. It's a parable of a father that says to one son, go into the field. He says, I'll do it, and then doesn't do it. Then he says to another son, go into the field, and he says, I will do it, but doesn't do it. So Jesus says to the religious leaders, which one of these two sons is right? And the religious leader said, well, the one who said he wouldn't do it, but then went and did what he was supposed to do, who bore fruit for his father. Jesus says, such is the case with you. You know, that real belief will manifest itself in behavior. And so, again, they're getting a little irritated. And then he chooses this parable as kind of the denouement, the coup de grace, if you will, of forcing them to understand that God is going to deal with them in their rejection of their responsibility in kingdom demands. Again, this is a parable about a wedding feast. Out of reverence for the reading of the Scripture, if you're able, would you now please stand? And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, one to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city.' 
Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And these servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there were uh, there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we all love weddings, don't we? I mean, they make lots of money even to this day. Uh, you have now wedding planners. You have wedding destinations, people planning all of that. Uh, you have the photographers for the weddings. I mean, weddings are popular events. They make lots of money. Uh, we even have movies that are all about weddings, from The Runaway Bride to Wedding Crashers to one of my favorites, The Princess Bride. Isn't that just a great movie? Weddings are everywhere, all around us. They're popular. And even people who've been raucously painful divorces most often still yearn to be married. There's just something about a wedding, something about a wedding feast that's very attractive to many people, and it has been that way throughout the centuries. Uh, In fact, when wedding invitations are received, we try to respond, especially if they're people who are important in our lives. Uh, and we especially love to give insight into wedding feasts that are royal in celebration, that have some kind of worldwide appeal. I mean, remember this wedding invitation from Prince William and Princess Kate now that went out to many of their friends that they wanted to attend the royal wedding recently? Now, they only could send out so many because the church could only seat so many. But this is the royal invitation that went out from Kate and from William. And then the whole ceremony was filled with pomp and splendor. Uh, Those of us who watched on television were mesmerized at all the decor and how much money was spent to make this wedding a huge, not only England event, but an international event. I mean, there's just something about weddings, but folks, there's something about a royal wedding from a king that is especially appealing. Well, as you think about that, realize that this parable, this story, and again, a parable from Jesus' lips, he told lots of parables, is a heavenly story, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So this parable that he tells is all about a wedding feast. And in Jesus' days, when kings would have a wedding feast, they would last for several days. They would be countrywide in endeavors, and invitations went out to every citizen of that country. So as we unpack this particular story, this parable, I want to put it into four acts, if you will, four different divisions that will help, I think, the story come alive to you. It's all about the invitations that the king sent out. Uh, His first invitation was sent out, and we see in verse 3, two different people in the kingdom to come be a part of the royal wedding. And how did these people respond? They said, no. 
No, not coming. It was consummate treason. The king who oversaw everything, who ruled everything, invited them to his son's wedding, and they basically said, no, not coming. Again, it was a grave insult to the king. Now, you need to understand that this has a double meaning. It's not just a general kind of a story about a king inviting people to his son's wedding. It has specific intentionality for the people with whom Jesus was dialoguing in the temple at that moment, the religious leaders. Because Jesus is the son of the king. We see that in many places in Scripture. Uh, For those of you who are spiritual skeptics today here and think that Jesus was just a good man, a moral teacher, a prophet, you just don't have that option biblically. The Bible says over and over and over again that Jesus is God in human flesh. He's the Father who sent the Son into this world to die for the forgiveness of our sins. John, for example, in John 5, verse 23, writes that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Father who is the King sent his Son to this earth, and the Son is dialoguing with the religious leaders, inviting them to his wedding feast. The very Son of the King is in the presence of the religious leaders, inviting them to the wedding feast of the Father. Paul in Colossians 1.16 says, Or by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And you know, I jokingly say to you sometimes, I looked up the word all in the dictionary this week. Guess what it means? All. It means all. That everything in this world, all things, visible and invisible, were created by Jesus. He's God in human flesh. He's the son of the king. And this Jesus has all authority, ruling over every other authority and power in heaven and on earth. So again, this first invitation has to do with Jesus talking to the religious authorities, saying to them, The king has sent me to give you this invitation. And they're responding with, no, not coming. At that very moment in the temple, they're thinking about ways to kill the son. No, don't want to come to your banquet. Then there's the movement toward the second invitation in verses 4 through 6. When the king learned that some had said, absolutely not, we're not coming, He then sent other messengers out to invite more people, and they went out, but the reception was lukewarm at best. Uh, Excuses were given by people that said, no, I can't come. Uh, There was the excuse, for example, of farm life, got to go back and work the farm. That was basically saying, I hear the invitation to enter the kingdom of God, but you know, my job's got lots of demands on me right now. I just don't have time. And frankly, some of you have used that as an excuse for not placing the kingdom of God as the first priority in your life. I've got work to do. So you spend most of your time in your job trying to make more money to give you security. Can't come. 
Then secondly, there's oxen, and, and oxen were novelties in that day, especially on farms. And for us today, I think that's the number of people who feel like life is basically revolving around them, and they should spend most of their time entertaining themselves. So a lot of you guys spend a vast majority of your time playing Game Boys and placing the kingdom of God second, maybe even tertiary. We spend all of our hours thinking how we should be satisfied and how I can feel good, and the kingdom of God is secondary. That's like oxen. You're just looking at life, the new flavor of the day, the new jolt of meaning that might come about. Ah, sorry, can't come to the wedding feast. And then thirdly, there are those who are just married. And interestingly, if you look at the Old Testament, there's a specific command from God in the laws that when a couple gets married, that first year they should devote totally and completely to themselves. The husband is free from all military service, from all community responsibilities. He is to spend his time totally devoting himself to his wife so that they can connect and get to know one another well. Uh, some of you know that sometimes the first year of marriage is the toughest year of marriage. And you get married, then jump into your jobs and your entertainment and all the other things in life, and you never connect. So when the first fights start to occur, as they do in most all marriages, you think, well, I must not love this person. And God wanted to deal with that issue by demanding that in that first year of marriage, the husband and wife spent that time together, building that relationship together. And so when the, kingdom's, the king's invitation to the kingdom, the wedding feast was given to these people, their excuse was, no, I've got to spend my time in marriage. And you know, some of you spend your time primarily not only in your jobs with a new thing, but also in your families, which isn't a bad thing. It just shouldn't be the first thing. Some of you put the kingdom as a secondary or tertiary responsibility because you want to give your time to your family. Now, here's what you need to know. In the Bible, it talks a lot about idols that hurt the heart of God. And many of you say, well, I don't have idols today. I mean, those are graven, molten images in the Bible. I don't take gold or silver and make a calf or something like that. I don't have idols. But you've misunderstood what the word idol means. An idol is simply taking anything in your life and making it the most important thing in your life rather than God. Anything. It could even be your kids. It could be your marriage. It could be your job. It could be all your entertainment. Anything that is penultimate that you make ultimate in life, anything that's of creation that you make into your creator is an idol. And that's what Jesus is warning here. The second invitation was given to those who had something else that was more important than the kingdom of God. So they said, can't come. Now also you need to know in Jesus' day, he's giving an allusion to what's about to happen. After he dies on the cross on Friday, he's raised from the dead on the next Sunday, then he is ascended into heaven 40 days later and sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all creation, waiting for the Father's day when he says, come back and return. During that time period after his ascension into heaven, Jesus' 120 disciples gathered in the upper room who had the Holy Spirit come upon them, went out into the world, especially the local area of Jerusalem and Judea, and preached the gospel. Some people came to faith, received the invitation to the wedding feast. 
But others rejected the message. And in fact, some of those disciples who went out and preached were beaten and killed by their listeners. So Jesus here talks about after the religious leaders rejected his invitation, there are going to be his disciples who go out and give the invitation into Jerusalem and Judea, and they're going to be beaten and killed, and they're not going to receive the invitation either. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus in Luke 13, verse 34, says these words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were, what folks? You're not willing. You would not respond. You'd not receive the invitation. So his disciples went out, and they were stoned, and they were beaten, and they were killed. In Jerusalem and Judea, they were not willing to receive the invitation to the wedding feast. Now, between Acts 2 and 4, there's a third act in verse 7 that seems strange to the story. But if you understand world history, it makes perfect sense. Verse 7 reads, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, this story is being told by Jesus in 33 A.D. Jesus here is prophesying about an event that's going to happen to Israel in 37 years. It's going to be when Rome continues to deal with the rebellion of the Jews against its authority and finally feels like in their treachery the only final option is to invade, overpower, and burn the city. Roman armies only burned a city that was totally treacherous, that was totally rebellious against Rome's authority. So Jesus here is saying, because you, Jerusalem, have rejected the repeated invitations to the Father's wedding feast, in the future, there's going to be an army that comes upon you, and the king, God, is going to use that Roman army as his instrument of judgment against you, which is exactly what happened. In 70 A.D., one of the most momentous events in the history of Israel occurred. Rome completely razed the city of Jerusalem, including the temple. And that temple has not been rebuilt to this day. Moreover, thousands upon thousands of Jews were dispersed throughout the world. It's called the Jewish diaspora. They were taken to Russia to Western Europe, to Northern Africa, because the Jews didn't want another rebellion. And they've remained there in those colonies largely to this day. Though we've noticed, interestingly, since 1948 and the formation of the nation of Israel, many of those Jews are immigrating to Israel to protect themselves against repeated persecution. So Jesus is making a prophecy here about the king coming and burning the city, again, which is what happened in 70 A.D. Then we move to the fourth act of the story, which is the third invitation in verses 8 through 10. So the king gets back from his servants that many were killed, beaten, bruised because of their extension of the wedding invitation, and so he's had it. In Popeye theology, that's all he could stand. He couldn't stand no more. 
So in the book of Acts, as the gospel was first taken to Jerusalem and Judea, the next place was Samaria and then the uttermost ends of the earth. So a new group of messengers go out with the invitation to people to come to the wedding feast. And that invitation is given to some good and some who are bad. They go into the main roads and they invite whoever wants to come. In other places that we see in the Bible, that includes the blind, the beggars, the maimed, the hurting, the diseased. And they're invited and they fill the banquet hall. Who are those people? Who are those people? Us. The rest of the world. Paul in Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. First of all to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Romans 1.16. Jesus said, I came first to the lost sheep of Israel, but then secondly to the Gentiles. The whole message of the gospel is that the Jews receive it first, And then secondly, it goes to the entire world. And that means you and me. So the wedding invitation is now extended to people all throughout the world. And we would not be here today, those of us who love Jesus and have responded positively to the wedding invitation, had these folks not given their lives to take the gospel into the world. In John 1.11, John says, Jesus came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. Jerusalem, how often, but you would not. So now we have the gospel given to us. The invitation is to the entire world. Now, that's awfully good news for those of us who have received that invitation and enter the wedding feast and know the power of the kingdom of God, have placed the kingdom of God as the first priority in our lives. But Jesus gives another parenthesis here in this story. It's almost a warning to what will happen in the kingdom of God in the future among Gentiles. For we come together in this beautiful bride called the church. Biblically, the church is the bride of Christ. God's the king. He sends his son with the invitation, and he marries you and me. Those of us who've received him, we're the bride of Christ. But in the formation of the church, Jesus gives this warning. A guy shows up from nowhere in the wedding feast, and he doesn't have the wedding clothes on. You see, in Jesus' day, people had to be properly attired to go to a wedding. And this guy entered the wedding with clothes that were not proper. And the king looked at him and said, friend... Interestingly, he called him friend. He's always reaching out, even to the most destitute, the most broken, even till the last moment. Friend, why are you in my wedding feast dressed like that? And the man was speechless. He had no answer. So the king said, bind him up, throw him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you guys know that I love to be loved, and I like people to like me, and I could give you messages week in, week out that tickle your ears and make me look good but not be faithful to the gospel, and I can't do that because I have a higher priority to be loyal to the king and not people-pleasing. 
Some of you who are spiritual skeptics are offended by the doctrine of hell in the Bible. But you just need to know that the one who gave us the most information about hell is Jesus himself. And if he's not just a good man and a prophet, but he's also God in human flesh, then he's the one who came from the invisible eternal world to warn us about its reality. As you've studied these parables, these stories with me over the last several weeks, I hope you've noted how many of them talk about the reality of eternal separation from God. There's the parable of the wheat and the tares where it's talked about, the parable of the separation of the good and bad fish, and now it's here again. And I should warn you, as we conclude this series over the next several weeks, it happens a couple more times. So if you struggle with the doctrine of hell, please go take it up with Jesus, not me. But it is the natural consequence to God giving all of us free will. Hell is the monument that God has given all of us of the reality that we can choose to enter the banquet feast and accept the invitation, or we can reject it. God loves us enough that he gives us the freedom to choose not to love him in return. And those who choose not to love him, not to respond to the wedding feast, they're cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, of course, I've told you before over the last weeks, I think that means eternal regret. I think it's people in hell who look at what they've chosen and have regret eternally. It's like missing a three-inch putt. It's like missing a wide-open layup. It's like missing an easy tennis shot. Eternal gnashing of teeth. Now, now who is this guy that gets cast out? He's a person who's not clothed with the right garb. In the Bible, especially in Pauline theology, Paul's messages in his letters, he talks over and over and over again about when you come to faith in Jesus, you take off your old, tattered, sin-stained garb, and you put on the holy clothing of Jesus and his righteousness. You, you put on, first of all, a heart that's forgiven. You know you're forgiven. All of your sins have been forgiven by him. It's such good news. But then also you, out of that heart that's now righteous, that's forgiven, that's clean and pure before God, you live righteously. You do good works. You please the king of the kingdom. And Paul, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, 24, write that down and read it later. Paul says, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Jesus is talking about people in the church who say they're Christians, but they don't live righteously. They've never been born of the Spirit. They never have that tremendous encounter with Christ where they give everything to him, where they've placed the kingdom first, where the wedding feast is of primary importance. Jesus warned about the same thing in the parable of the wheat and the tares, remember? He said, in the kingdom of heaven, there are going to be wheat and tares that grow alongside one another. The wheat and the tares look exactly alike. And he warned those of us, don't try to separate the tares from the wheat. Don't try to judge who's a true Christian or not. But he said, the angels will do it at the second coming. And that which will determine the judgment is wheat ultimately produce fruit. Tares or weeds do not. So there it is. There will be 
tears, weeds in the church. People who say they're Christians, but there's no righteousness. There's no fruitfulness. My son is a millennial, and he told me recently, he said, Dad, you know why millennials don't want to go to church? They find Jesus attractive, he said. They just don't like Christians. Powerful. They're they're not attracted to the righteousness that should live within us than the righteous deeds that we do for the glory of the king of the kingdom and his wedding feast. Now, there are two dangers for Christians that cause them to get off track. The first one is Christianity sometimes becomes just legalism. You reduce the faith to rules and regulations. And when you do so, that which you're most vulnerable to is condemnation. Paul said in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet I have Christians tell me all the time they feel accused and condemned. Well, the only way that you can feel accused and condemned is if you think your identity with God is wrapped up in obedience to the law. The Bible says that Jesus came to cancel the law. Now, not to cancel the law's importance in our lives. We're supposed to obey the moral law of God. That is an expression of our righteousness within But as Jesus said in John 15, 10, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The obedience to his commandments comes in response to knowing our identity is in him and him alone. So if you feel condemned, there's some law that you have in your life that you've established that you think you've got to live up to for God to love you. When Jesus canceled the law, No longer is the law the standard for receiving his love. We're just loved because he wildly loves us. We're all maimed and beggars and blind, invited to his wedding feast. And he says, come on in. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what I've done for you on the cross. There's no law involved in that. So there are Christians who fall under the condemnation of the law, and they live bound under condemnation, and it's not attractive to the unbelieving world. But the other extreme that's equally dangerous, maybe even more so, is called licentiousness. There's legalism and licentiousness. What's licentiousness? The Greek word for love in the Bible is agape, A-G-A-P-E. Well, there are Christians who take the grace and love of Jesus and turn it into licentiousness to do whatever they want to do, even sin, saying, oh, he loves me more than my sin. I can do anything I want to do, therefore he'll forgive me. Paul taught grace in Romans chapters 4 and 5, and then he gets to 6, 1, and he anticipates the licentious Christian. And he says, am I teaching this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can continue to sin His response to his own question rhetorically, may it never be, triple exclamation mark. This understanding of grace allowing us to continue to sin is called greasy grace. It's not a part of those who truly received the wedding invitation. Those who have truly received the wedding invitation have put on the garment of righteousness, 
and live out of the reality of a forgiven righteous heart and then perform righteous deeds for the glory of the king who invited us to the wedding feast. These people who are in the church who say they've received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus but live like hell, you have an eternal damnation waiting you. That's the point Jesus was trying to make. He gave this illustration to safeguard his church against licentiousness. Sloppy agape, greasy grace, using God's love as a license to sin. May that never be. For those of us who've received the righteousness of Christ and have put his garb around us, we should be the most holy, the most righteous, the most obedient to God's moral law. And that's what Jesus meant in Matthew 5 when he said, unless your righteousness, Christians, exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. We, we Christians should be more righteous than the most faithful Orthodox Jew. We should be more righteous than the most faithful Orthodox Muslim. Because we know the beauty and power of grace, the invitation to come to the wedding feast. And then Jesus ends the story with those powerful words, many are called but few are chosen. And I've come to believe that in the over three decades I've preached. The many means all. The whole world's invited to the wedding feast. But just not a whole lot really want to respond. Not a whole lot of people really want to place the kingdom as the highest priority in their lives. Do you? Dear friends, there is a wedding feast awaiting us. We've entered in a way now, but boy, is there one waiting for us in heaven. That's what John meant in Revelation chapter 19, 7 through 9, when he penned these words from the Holy Spirit. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, Jesus the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, who's the bride? The church, Christians, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Saints are those who believe. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's a wedding feast waiting for all of us who believe in Jesus and have placed his kingdom first and live righteously. <laughs> oh, and one other verse before we leave. Matthew 6, Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his, what folks, his, oh, four of you, <laughs> seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Don't you understand? Those other things, family, friends, fun, jobs, they're not unimportant. They just can't be most important. And if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness within expressed in righteous deeds, then all the other stuff will be added to you. 
It comes naturally as you place the kingdom of heaven first. Is it? Only you know whether you've responded to the invitation of the king to the wedding feast for his son. I pray you have. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Would you stand, please?